Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy, folks. Welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. I have Michael Powers on the show today. Michael is the Dean of Arts at LOXA, the Los Angeles County School of the Arts, one of the preeminent uh, performing arts high schools in the entire nation. He's also the co-founder of Orchestra Los Angeles. Uh, he and I started that uh, over a year ago now, I think about two years ago. And uh, that's put, been put on hold, which I've mentioned before and we talk about in the podcast. We also talk about leadership. We talk about the idea of perfectionism. We talk extensively about our childhoods, the uh, failures of the father, what it is to be a hero. We talk about assumptions that people make about one another, and we talk about the importance of music, both personally and uh, on a global level. So I really hope that you enjoy our chat. Thanks so much for listening, and here's Michael. Uh, yeah, no, we're, we're recording now. <laughs> but your voice, your voice sounds, your voice sounds fine. It's just, it kind of, just kind of sounds like this a little bit, but you know. So a little Michael Jackson filter happening. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just like your normal voice. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So how are you? I'm okay. I just, you know, getting myself together this morning. You know, I uh, woke up at 6 a.m. Not of my own volition. Yeah, what's Brain that about? I guess lately with all the stuff going on with life and work, um, my brain has decided to turn me into an old man and just wake me up at ungodly hours of the morning. It's happening to me too. <laughs> I um, Yesterday, let's see, uh, the two nights ago, I woke up at, I don't know, like two in the morning or something, and I was up till five. And I just I just couldn't mm -hmm. sleep. And then I've been watching this this show about um, it's this English guy who who kind of follows people's um, refurbishment of their houses. Like they buy interesting properties and they make them into these. I don't know. I forget what it's called. Anyway, it's a perfect thing to watch between uh, two and five a.m. If if you ever need this. <laughs> <laughs> I love. Home renovation shows. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a few that we watch. I love and hate them at the same time. I love them because it shows like the possibilities to renovate something old that's historic or interesting that maybe just didn't get the love and attention it needed, and then they update it, and it's just like, wow. Yeah. Here's what I hate. I live in Los Angeles County, where I can't buy a fixer upper or a home state or a love it or list it. I can't buy one of these damn houses for a. $48,000 or $150,000 and then renovate it, you know, for another $100,000. So the all in cost is $250,000. So here in LA, you buy the fixer upper for $800,000 and then you put another, you half know, million, $200,000 yeah. yeah. or half a million for that matter. And then you get it, you get a little shack somewhere with uh, three bedrooms and two baths that, that's livable. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, I, there's a show, there's one of those shows, I think it takes place in Mississippi or, or something. And it's, it's like that, you know, they buy houses for $45,000 or something. Laurel, Mississippi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mississippi. That's really nice couple. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and it's this couple nice that's couple. at least partly responsible for 
uh, rehabbing the whole town. Like they've, they've made a, a point right. of, yeah, it's really, it's a lovely story actually, but you know, I guess it's about location. Now I say that because when I was in my twenties, LA was the most magical place in the world. Like there was nothing like Los Angeles, but now that I'm in my fifties, I think Laurel looks pretty nice. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, well, you know, there's a sense of like, you know, especially if you live near walking distance to the town, and even if you don't, you know, you, there's a sense of town, of community, of, of an, an identity to the space and people around you with which you can kind of live and grow with and relationships. In LA, I noticed that that is something where it's possible but very difficult to have the sense of relationship and community within your, your small neighborhood. You have to drive everywhere. You have the freeways that divide us. I mean, all of this, uh, you know, nonprofits do studies all the time on the divides, the 405 divide, you know, the 110 divide. And our concert goes is willing to go back and forth or over that divide to go see a concert. And so that that's indicative of our, of our city in so many ways, like how separate we are and how hard it is to, to, to kind of just come together. But I could, yeah, Laurel, Mississippi, man, it looks like a dream. Yeah. I've, you know, I don't know anybody in my neighborhood. I know our neighbors. I, I know them like the people across the street, we exchange gifts every, every Christmas. They're really sweet. Um, you know, they've got a key to our house. Well, if if yeah. we need anything when we're out of town or whatever that my back, my backyard neighbor, I know, but all of my friends are in music and my neighborhood really doesn't have a lot of musician, you know, musicians that I know, no, nobody that I know around here. And it's, you know, LA is such a big, huge, sprawling city. And then when you talk about meeting people and, and finding some kind of uh, fraternity with, with new friends in the city, it, it's really hard. And that's, that kind of brings me to our relationship, which is really interesting yeah. because you're somebody who I, um, met just you know three years ago or so and mm -hmm. um and then we started orchestra los angeles and we've we've I've, i feel like i made this new friend and it's it's really it is difficult to do um and then i wanted to ask you too about that about all the silly rehab stuff um did, have you ever done any of that kind of rehabbing i when i was a little kid i i did it with my grandfather so i like for instance okay. I, I sent you a picture i'm looking at it right now i sent you a picture of the the mm -hmm. uh, stove uh, vent that i uh, what do you call it? A range hood. Oh that yeah, I the hood. Yeah, so I do that. Kind, I do that kind hood. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do you do yeah. that? Is that, um, is that in your wheelhouse? Gosh, I, in your wheelhouse? Yes, I can. Um, that sort of idea. You know, I've always been sort of really interested in even from a kid. You know, I would get a toy. I was the type of kid who would get a toy and take it apart and put it back together. So yeah, I, I remember specifically like a, a radio controlled. It was like a red sports car or something and i was just like how does this work and get the screwdriver out and you're just like you know pull it apart and like oh okay i see you know like circuit board and motors and stuff like that didn't quite understand it but then i would put it back together and it would still work so i had this sort of sense of like how things fit together how, how do they work and so throughout my whole life i've not been afraid to like get in there and like fix stuff you know i have I've got on my tools and power tools and that sort of thing. In 2009, though, um, bought a condo in Culver City that the market was was friendly. You know, I guess it's a positive way to put that if you were trying to buy anyways. Um, and bought a condo that um, 
Gosh, it been owned by a little old lady, um, God bless her, for I think 20 plus years. So the thing was like, it, it had not gotten a renovation at all um, or any more than a coat of paint inside. And so uh, we bought the house, uh, me and my, my ex-wife, Jennifer, we bought the place. Um, we had even wrote a letter, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're first time parents, we're first time home buyers, you know, give us a chance. We had our documents all in order. We we're pre-approved. And like, it was so hard to buy these, the, the cheap houses or the cheap condos because all of these developers were swooping in and grabbing full cash offers, full cash offer. So it was just a, an achievement just for someone just to say, you know what, we want to give this house to you. And Warts and all, everything needed to be replaced, painted, updated. And we, we closed on the house, I still remember this, on a December 1st, and we we're slated to move in January 4th. So we had one month, and uh, I, I you know painted the whole place uh, with some uh, help from family. I, I bought a spray painter and like put on the whole bodysuit, sprayed down the whole thing, closets, everything. Um, I, I learned elect electrical um, uh, for the house. I just got one of these sunset books, you know, from like Home Depot. Right, right, yeah. Let me learn electrical engineering in an afternoon, you know. And I <laughs> I just learned how to replace lights, you know, the fixtures, um, plugs. Um, I... I uh, re, I refinished all of the cabinets. I, I took them all out. I backed out all the hardware, um, took them to a, a, a warehouse that my sister was living in at the time in East LA. And I was able to put all of the, of the doors for all the cabinets out and like sand them down. And every couple of days I come back and put another coat of paint on them. So they'd be like nice and smooth. So, you know, I just got really crafty and, and just, you know, just did it. You know, I, I did have help doing the flooring. Like I'd never done car, uh, carpet that much or uh, tiling. And so, you know, I hired a, a friend of a friend to come in and do all that for me. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a trip, but it, it was fun. I don't know. It was, there's something like satisfying about like, you did it. I, I did all this stuff. It may not be perfect, but I did it. And, and that's, you know, kind of my philosophy of life. You know, the one thing I would always ask myself if it was um, a question of safety, I would say, well, what's the worst that could happen? And if the answer was death, dismemberment, or disaster, then I, I, I get somebody else to do that. <laughs> right. I feel the same way. I feel like if it if I really mess it up, how how hard would it be to fix versus just calling somebody mm -hmm. to do it straight away? I always like to give it a try first. And about half the time yeah. I do make it worse, I'll, I'll admit. Um, but I feel, I, feel, I feel like that's the only way to, to learn how to do things. And, and well, before I start talking about myself here, I wanted to, I wanted to go back and, and say that there are a few things that I know about you and you've just illustrated them. One is your meticulous nature and two is, are your, is your work ethic. And I'm wondering, is that something, what is it that propels you to do, to work really hard and to get it right and how do you how does it feel mm. when i mean i'm getting i'm getting towards perfectionism really i have a perfectionist um, streak. Uh, 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 yeah and it, yeah. it can be really destructive um, also 
So where does that come from and how do you deal yeah, with failure when it doesn't work out? I, gosh, that's like the question of my life. Um, for, you know, I can say even, even like for better or worse, you know, like my, my, some of my family members, even like when I was young and into teenagehood would say like, Mike's such a perfectionist, you know, like it was this sort of pejorative in a way. Um, because it, there's something about, even when I was five, six, seven years old at that time, you know, I, I, my favorite toy was space Legos. Let's just go back that far. And, and I get the box and you see, ha, ah, this is the one that was like the little, the little tow truck towing the missile, you know, it had this little kind of missile thing, you know, and you, and I put that together and it's a little spaceman who drives the truck and a, and, a, and I put that together and I started collecting different ones. Something in my brain said, this is just the way it goes. There is no other way. I'm, I'm not going to disassemble it and put it back together. That's a different set of Legos. That's the set of Legos. That's just the box of Legos and you can kind of be creative and put it together in that way. But my mind is always divided having a process and something that's just, this is the way it needs to be versus like, okay, that's a creative thing that I can put that part of my brain into where it can just be what it needs to be. And it can be flexible and imaginative and dynamic. Uh, it started back then. And then how that translated and kind of grabbed into my brain in a, po a really positive way was when I was introduced to music. Right. And... And I really, I didn't come from a musical family. I, I didn't have lessons. I didn't get piano lessons like other kids. I, I you know, I, um, you know, that my story is, is such that, you know, I came out of a situation where, you know, when I was very young, my father was incarcerated for armed robbery and drugs, et cetera. And he wasn't really part of my life. And then it left my mom with me and two sisters to try to raise. And, and she moved us from Los Angeles up to Northern California to, to be with friends and to try to establish a new environment and, and, you know, sort of get out of the situation uh, of her life where, you know, maybe her kids were not in the best environment. And, and so that kind of pulled us up out. Um, and so getting back to music, like, you know, a lot of people maybe take a look at me or my career or what I've accomplished and say, well, that, you know, that guy, he had, he went to private schools. Uh, he had a full scholarship to study French horn. He went to USC. Uh, he had he it taught all. At yeah. USC. Mm -hmm. He done all these things. Look at that guy. You know, that's, that's the privileged, uh, dude. And really the, the story, the real story in a nutshell is that I had to bite and scratch for every inch of that. And, and so when I was in ninth grade, I, I'd been exposed to music a little bit through the school program in junior high. Uh, and I, I'd started, but I actually ended up stopping and quitting because I was trying to work and I was doing a paper route before school in seventh grade, getting up at 4.30 a.m., rolling newspapers, putting them into bags on my bike and going out by 6 a.m., throwing newspapers around my neighborhood, going around collecting every single day, uh, every once a month to, you know, get people to pay. There was, there was no PayPal back then. There was no subscriptions we literally had to go knocking on doors and say you know can you give me the ten dollars for the month you know and, and if they didn't pay i was out the money you know right um 
So, you know, I got back into music in ninth grade. My best friend, uh, Jason, um, kind of pressured me. He, he let the music teacher know, Steve Connolly, that I had started music. You know, by then I'd forgotten everything. And he got me back into music in ninth grade on the French horn. That was my first instrument. And it was really him, his viewpoint on life and music on perseverance, on structure, on discipline, that kind of took that part of me that was like, this is the way it must be, and this is how things have to progress in order to get to a high level, sort of like locked in with me. And within a year, from my freshman year to my sophomore year, I progressed to the point where I, I decided I was going to get into the Northern California Honor Band. I just decided in one year, because I saw other people's like, you know, I could do that. I could do that. I, I made the tape with the help of a teacher. We used cassettes back then, sent it in with my application. And lo and behold, I got in. I mean, you know, that's like, you know, yada, 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 I got in. <laughs> um, and that was like the first success in my life that I could say, that's mine. That belongs to me and my effort and my search for like doing things this way. And that, that grabbed into me in a very positive way. It gave me direction. It, it put into me, you know, my smart, I was always kind of naturally smart and liked school. I liked studying, and, but it was this sort of voice that I had that I had never experienced with anything else. I wasn't being encouraged to go to college. I wasn't uh, really told or encouraged to pursue music at all. And so it was my thing. And I, it kind of saved my life in high school because it got me through some pretty dark times through depression, got me through the feeling of loneliness, of being kind of a little bit isolated um, during during that time, both from family and and, and friendships. And, you know, that's a whole other story. But um, gosh, perfectionism now comes through to me and has both positive and negative things positive in that, gosh, I really want something to go well. And there's ways to do that that can make something professional and beautiful. And, and as a conductor, you know, you're striving for this sort of sense of perfection. And, and like every detail has a place and a meaning. Where that's a negative, though, and for a lot of artists, I believe, and I know this is true for, for you and others that I know, it can stymie you because good enough doesn't feel good at all. Yeah, the it stakes become too enough. high. They become unrealistically high, yeah. And that, that that's held me back in many ways uh, in different projects and different things from just like, I'm going to iterate again and again and again and not to be afraid to push out and, and jump off that cliff or make that leap um, because I might fail and it might not be good enough. And and so it really has been the last, I would say, five years of my life to come to a point where I'm like, you know, what? if I don't start taking some leaps, if I don't start taking some real push towards the life I imagine in art, then it's not going to mean much to me later on. So one thing grabbed me, uh, something that you said was that music was something that could be mine. And I'm yeah. wondering if if that comes from a lack of control as a child. Now, I know that it was for me. You and I have very, very mm. similar, I mean, almost parallel um, upbringings. I mean, my yeah. my 
birth from my paternal what do you call it paternal my my father my the, the person who made my mom pregnant mm. um never went to jail although he was he did hide out from the police um but he mm. he kind of kicked us out of the house when i was around four we were living yeah. in Ensenada at the time and um i remember his workers he my, my family owned factories in, in mexico and we lived across from an aluminum factory that was for Porsche that they made wheels and stuff. And um, I remember his workers like coming over and just throwing boxes, empty boxes into the front yard over the yeah. chain link fence. And we like packed up yeah. and, and left. Yeah. Uh -huh. My mom's second husband did end up going to prison. Um, so we have, um, we have some very similar things and music uh, attracted me in the same way. I think, I'm, I'm, I don't want to make mm. any assumptions, mm. but yeah. it was something that was mine, that nobody in my family yeah. was a musician. Nobody could judge me yeah. against or, or against somebody else in the family. Nobody else in the family were, was expert in music. I became the music yeah. expert um, and it yeah. gave me something to control. You know, when we're kids, we yeah. don't we don't get to choose where we live, yeah. what happens to us, what. Uh, if, you know, I, so I had feelings of abandonment. I had feelings of anxiety. I had, you know, and what that really comes, comes down to is a lack of control. And I think music gave me something, you know, I've said this before many times on my podcast and to friends that I was really good at music right away. And I didn't know that I had it until I was in my twenties, but suddenly I had this thing where I, I was sitting on, on the golden ticket. And I'm wondering if that if the sense of perfectionism, the sense of um, the, your meticulous nature, um, all of these things, are they propelled by some feeling of of needing to prove yourself to somebody in your family, to prove yourself to the world or mm. to yourself? Or where, where does, I mean, how old were you when that, when everything went down with your mm. father going to, to prison? Were you a, a little boy? Yeah, that was... Um... To the best of my recollection, six years old, and huh. even before that, it he was a, it was very absent from my life. Uh, you know that he wasn't this father. It was like take me to the park and, and throw throw the ball around. Same we here. didn't go yeah. on fishing trips or camping trips. There, there, it was just a sense like he was a dude that you know just goes floating through life, and he's a bit philosophical, a little bit religious, a little bit hippie, a little bit druggy. And he, he was a smart kid. You know, the, my family always tried to tell me the positive things about him. Oh, my, my father's name was Michael as well, but they called him Mike. And I said, oh, Mike was so smart. He's the smartest one of all of us. That kid was, you know, when he was in uh, junior high and, and early in high school, they, they tested him as a genius in math and science. The kid was smart. And somehow... You know, I never got the full picture and no one was really courageous enough to say, you know, I'm going to sit down and tell you about your dad. I'm going to sit down and, and tell you what I know about him that you might be able to just understand better about him. The good and the, the, the bad, the good, bad and the ugly, if we might you know, kind of go back to a, a great Clint Eastwood film. In fact, it's one of my favorites because in some ways the hero or even the anti-hero is something that I feel like is a part of my life or even identity. I feel in some way, like you said, like in some ways I feel like both a hero and an anti-hero in my family. I, you know, Catherine, my wife has noticed this, that there's a certain kind of contempt for me and my, 
larger family, but what I do and what I represent, not because I'm a bad guy, but it's like, be like, you know, an aunt of mine, would, I would go to a family picnic and the first thing she'll say to me, be like, Hey, stick waver. Uh, you know, or another uncle would say, you know, who's, who's playing music, strumming the guitar, uh, at the picnic. And he'll say, uh, Hey, uh, you still teaching at USC? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That's it. That was the whole extent of their curiosity or pride in like, Hey, here's one of our family members. Who's like, who took something that, that he had and like, and went for it and like took himself out of a situation that, that by all rights, he should have failed. You know, I didn't, didn't have all those privileges or paths or people pushing me, helping me, you know, you know, there's no money for school, nothing. And so it's always been a bit of, for me, like I, I can feel myself sometimes going like, well, Hey, F you, I'm going to do this thing. I'm, this is mine. You can't tell me that I can't do this <laughs> because it's mine. I mean, can I use ex expletives on this? You certainly can. I don't yes. know. <laughs> it's mine, motherfucker. <laughs> it's mine. <laughs> and, but I don't say that out loud. I do it with my actions. It's like every time somebody, a, a mentor or a conductor would say, you know, I, I can tell you this. Um, you know, I, I had my dream of like going to a great school for conducting and, and I was working at the Manhattan School of Music and I was, you know, studying conducting. I was working as orchestral librarian. I, I was, I was actually conducting. I was getting gigs as a conductor before I had my degree or anything. It was, it was such a magical time. I was living in New York city right after I graduated college undergraduate. And, um, it just was like this time of like, Hey, this is the time of my life that I'm going to really learn what it is to be a musician going to the metropolitan opera and watching the, the ring cycle with James Levine conducting, you know, going to, to see, uh, uh, or any of these great operas on that stage, going to watch the New York Philharmonic at that time, Kurt Mazur and meeting him and talking in conductor circles with other young conductors. It was so magical this trajectory, it was like imagining my story and seeing it move forward. And I am part of this circle of people pushing out and I am going to become a conductor that is in my future. So I get to the point in Manhattan School of Music where I'm working there and I, and I um, make kind of colleagues or a mentor with, uh, with, with one of the conducting teachers. Um, he's a well-known Czech conductor, and he uh, was conductor of the New, Jer New Jersey Symphony at the time. His name was Stanek Makal, and he's one of the foremost interpreters of, of Eastern European music, but also just European music in general. Well-respected conductor um, and, and really a master teacher as well. Some ways couldn't articulate things in English very well, but he, the way he could just demonstrate something you know, you get a, get a student conductor in the podium in some of these workshops. And he invited me to be in one of his workshops as he got conducted after watching me, um, a video of me conducting Dvorak, uh, string serenade. He says, yeah, there's something here. I, I want to invite you to my workshop. And I'd see some conductor get up there, um, you know, conduct some piece. Um, Moldau was one of them, Smetana. And it starts, it's in 6-8, and it starts with this just lovely little feeling. It's, it's about this river, the Moldau. 
Is and that the, the whole it's home is, poem. Is that the um da 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 right 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 you, got it yeah you've got and you're singing the minor mode one but later it transforms into major mode so it's this whole story about this the river and the experience of moving down and through in different episodes and scenes and there's a little marriage scene there's the rapids etc but the, at first it just starts like a little bubbling stream you know you know it's just it's just trickling along and you get a conductor up there and they're just like you know they're just doing their you know one two three four five six one and it's falling apart and no 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 one can figure out what the conductor is really trying to do he can't give a good upbeat and mccall would come up like a hawking eagle you know he was just he always scrunched over and he would just be <laughs> and and it was perfect the same orchestra one minute before struggling a student orchestra struggling to be together struggling to like line up and make music and he would simply breathe and lift a hand and it was perfect the same people on that stage and i see that happen i'm like fuck <laughs> that's a conductor that he is the music. And those are the moments that caught me and just said, that thing is my future. So I applied for his program. He was, they, in, they got him to be the conductor of the, the master's program at Manhattan School of Music. And I was like, I, I have to study with this master. I need a master teacher to guide me. I don't, I've never had that in my life, you know? I, my, my upbringing was I went to a high school of 350 people with a transformative individuals, Steve Connolly, my band director, God rest his soul, transformative in my life. Was he a, he was a great teacher, maybe even a master teacher, but not at the level of a Zenic McCall, of course, but still great. And then I go to university of Pacific, great teachers, the right environment for me, a small conservatory. I was a, you know, kind of a big fish in a small pond. And then I go to New York City where I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And I want to study with this guy. So I apply for the program one year and I'm conducting, it was Mozart, I still remember that. And I'm conducting along and, and I, and I, you know, I have my baton and I do a motion where I hit the stand and my baton flies out into the second violins and just drops there. And I'm mortified and I keep conducting and like my, my musicality, everything goes out the window. Cause I'm just like, Ugh! and the second violins are handing me back my baton. <laughs> They're like, here you go, maestro. And I'm like, ah, I said, that's it. I'm done. This is not going to, you know, I'm not in the program. Everything's ruined. And indeed that's what happened. Undaunted, fast forward, I apply the next year. And I study, and I study, I do ear training, I'm doing score reading at the piano. I was not a pianist, and I was not a score reader, but I'm going to try my best to do everything I can to get into this program. I'm going to you know, train my ear better. i just got to be better, better, better. That's a perfectionist thing. And I get to that audition, and I'm conducting, and I'm like, I'm feeling the music. I'm there. Yes. Conduct. You know, get through the audition, orchestra, applause, 
applauso, applauso, you know, it, they felt it. We were there. Yes, yes, yes. The other candidates go, everyone goes. There's like five, they invite like five candidates only to this round out of all the applicants. It's over. And McCall is wondering who he needs to choose, who gets to study with me. And he's unsure. He's going to take two students out of the five. And in his mind, one of them is certain. And two of them, I'm unsure of. And one of those two is me. So this is what I hear from the musicians that happen next. He goes in front of the orchestra and says, you know, thank you, orchestra. You know, bravo. I wonder, I'm trying to decide between Michael and George. Wait, wait, hold on. Was, was everybody in the room? Were you in the room when this was happening? Ah, uh, no. No, candidates had to stay outside. The whole orchestra's there, and any administrators and McCall front of the yeah. orchestra. And he's like, I wonder who should be in this program. Orchestra, I want to ask you, I, I, I want to get your feedback on this. Please raise your hands and vote for the candidate that you would like to see come into the program. And say, uh, hands up for George. A few hands go up. Um, okay. Michael is the other candidate I'm considering. Hands up for Michael. The, not just the majority, but I, I, I hear that it was almost a unanimous, like, Michael. It's not the end of the story. He's still contemplating, and he asked me to come back to the green room backstage in the Manhattan School of Music. I still remember this very clearly. He brings me back and sits me down and says, Michael, uh, you did a good job today. Uh, I must say, though, that that I've made a decision about about you. And says, you know, I, I asked the orchestra; they they really like you. You know, a lot of your friends are there. They really like you. They voted for you. Um, you know, the test you did well on the test, but you know, um, you know, it's just, you probably memorized a lot of the the facts on that, and and you know. It, but I must say, you should stay a librarian uh, or play French horn. Mm, I'm just not going to take you into my program. I said, Maestro, I, I'm really confused. I, I feel like I really earned my way here. You know, I showed myself, I proved myself to you, to the orchestra. And, and I said, Maestro, I, I want to tell you that I intend to become a conductor. I, I will become a conductor. And in fact, I, I would like to shake on that. I said, I, I, I want to tell you that I, I am going to become a conductor and I will come back and tell you this later or somehow we'll, we'll meet up and I'll show you that I have, I have done that. And he says, well, shakes my hand and, and I'm devastated. I go out and I'm devastated, truly devastated. I, I went through a depressive period, a, a crying upset, talk to the administration. They're like, well, we can't control who he takes. It is his decision. And I, I was just, it really set me back because, you know, if I could point 
and look at the students who did get into that program, many of those, and there was only, the program was only open for like three years too. And then he left. The, out of the, I think it was four candidates that he ended up taking during that time, three still have very uh, high level uh, conducting careers, including, you know, uh, well, I don't want to name them all because you could probably yeah, deduce that I don't want to, you know, go into that story. But, you know, th that is a linchpin in music, especially who recommends you, who puts you forward as a candidate into the ears and eyes of arts administrators. Does matter who you study with, to a degree. But that set me back. And then and in the following, in that same year, I had applied to USC, and I, I, you know, I got an audition and somehow, again, that's a different story, but I auditioned and they immediately were like, we want you, come stay here. And it just felt like, okay, let's go home. Let's go back to California. It, this, this, is just, this is what the universe is telling me to do. Go back to California, be close to family and friends. Um, my father had just died. Um, and then I also learned that my uncle, uh, soon after I had kind of moved, was diagnosed with cancer. My father had died from cancer. My grandmother had died from cancer when I was in, in high school as well. And now I, I learned that my uncle, uh, my dear uncle, all on my father's side is diagnosed with skin cancer. And it just feels like, you know, I, I need to be close to family. Uh, I need to peel, lick my wounds and go study. I was excited to go to USC too as a great school and, you know, n nothing lost on, on me on how great a school it is. Um, and so that's what brought me back in 2003 to Los Angeles. And that, that, that story has sat with me a long, long, long time. It's taken me a long time to heal from that because Annie's failure brings back those same emotions of like, I did my best, but God damn it, I am going to do this thing regardless. So that's kind of the, the dichotomy of, of my thinking whenever I quote unquote fail at something. Yeah, I would I would imagine that there's a, a real sense of oh, and you basically outlined it of proving yourself to your family, possibly to your father, despite I mean, no matter what your father does or who he is as a son, there's some element of needing to uh, be you know, receive pride from your father, uh, feel like you've done a good job, whether you <laughs> whether you respect him or whether he's a louse or not. I think that's just something that's built into into sons and that father-son dynamic. And I would imagine that during that period when you didn't get into Manhattan and then your father died and all the shit's hitting the fan at the same time, I did you feel like you missed your opportunity for to once and for all say, dad, I made something of myself? Yeah, I. it's hard to, it's hard to specifically link that. You know, I, I could tell you a short little story about being asked by my family to speak at his memorial service when, when he died. And, then he, and his ashes are buried in the forest lawn down in Orange County, mm -hmm. as along with a number of my other families. It's kind of the family plots are there. My grandmother, my uncle, grandfather, and an extended family. Uh, my, my family's been in Los Angeles for, I think, more than four or five generations even. They're quite strongly established here on my father's side, at least. My mother's side came from Ohio and West Virginia um, in the 
late 50s, I believe, late 1950s. Um, but as far as like that relationship with father, you know, I think it, I summed it up in the, my statement, I paraphrased from my memory about what I thought about my relationship with my father or what he gave to me or us. I struggled to to find something that I could say at a memorial service that was positive. <laughs> that was appropriate, oh. yeah, <laughs> for the occasion. <laughs> right, yeah, I mean, what, what was I supposed to say? Yeah, like, fuck you, you know, I'm you, out. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, there's so many wrongs here. You know, my relationship with my father, as far as my, mem my majority of my memories of him, are visiting him in San Quentin and Soledad and, or, or right at first it was the Orange County prison system. You know, imagine being a seven year old and going to San Quentin and you're waiting through different checkpoints and they're, you're a seven year old kid and they're patting you down in prison or they're waving a wand over you because, you know, I had a little belt with a, a metal, you know, belt buckle and they're, they're, they took the belt off. And I, wouldn't, I wasn't allowed to go into the prison with the belt on. And, you know, it's like I had these scary police officers shepherding us into this inner sanctum that, that, you know, I could perfectly picture the inner sanctum of the visiting facilities. And you go and you sit at a table and you have to sit at that table. And then about 15 minutes later, then they unlock a door and the, and the prisoners come out in single file and come find you. And this is hard. You see your dad. And all the other children are seeing their dad. Maybe for the first time in a year. You might have got a letter or a call. And you just feel happy. You don't, you don't understand where you are, the environment. It's just like, my dad. And you, you see him, and then, you know, he's dressed, you know, the shirt, the chambray shirt you have on, you know, the, the style was at that time, you know, the chambray shirt buttoned up. I still completely remember this. His hair was slicked back, got a pack of cigs in the front. He's got this swagger, dead eyes, just swaggering, you know. And then he sees you, and he lights up. And, you just want to feel that love. When when did you? I mean, obviously, we never recover from things like that. You know, I tell yeah. the story. I tell the story about the workers throwing boxes into my front yard, and my yeah. my, my big um, Saint Bernard George was racing back and forth. He was a dog I used to ride as a little kid. Mm -hmm. Um, we had to leave him behind, and we we left the frogs that used to croak outside mm. the house because we had a leaky yeah, spigot yeah. and they would sit underneath the spigot and I'd see the frogs and the, yeah. uh, the candy cart that would come down the little road and Ensenada and I'd buy the, the milk candy and, you know, my friend, yeah, we, we left everything and we, uh, we went from yeah. a very rich family to very, you know, my mom and I were pretty yeah. broke for a while. Um, <laughs> lived, yeah. lived with my grandparents and, uh, my question to you is the same question I guess I have for myself. When do you recover from those things? For me, like yeah. you, music music was the thing that yeah. was like a life raft. But do you ever oh, really feel like yeah. you're, really... 
do you ever really feel like you're out of the water? Well, yeah, I mean, I want to quickly like bring back the little story because I think it's relevant. You know, I, I think to come to terms with that relationship, especially as a father son relationship, you know, in that memorial service, I said, you know, the greatest gift my father gave me and my sisters was that he left no footprints and he left no shadow. When I go forward into the world, I don't have to think about measuring up to my father. You don't have that anchor. It's not, it's I am not there anymore. Free. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm free to be exactly who I imagine myself to be. I, I, and, and in some ways, that freedom is a bit of like that sort of, not just rebellion, but you know, the, the reaction, the reactionary part of you that says, I will never be that person. I will never be that father. And when I am grown up, I'm, I'm going to be someone who my son respects, who I can respect my own self, who gives love to the world in the best way that you can think of. For me, that is music. That when I am on the podium or working with musicians, the singers in, in front of me, whether they be students or professionals, for me, it's like, hey, what are we doing to make love happen in this environment so that the audience feels that we come away feeling like music is transformative. It is something that that for me and many, I guess we can almost call that a, a maxim of life, that music is impactful. And, and we find this in art music ourselves most impactfully because that's what we're drawn to. Um, so when we're on the, in the act of making music. I think that is the point at which we're looking for a bit of redemption. And we're also looking to heal. Because those wounds as a child run so deep about, am I worthy of being loved? And when you can finally say, yes, you can start releasing. And for me, that's been pretty recently. You know, I've, I've worked with a therapist for a number of years for the first time in my life to say, hey, here's my traumas. Here's my shit. Here it is. Help me to deal with the wounds that hold me back. And so I think music is, from the selfish point of view, a therapy that we engage in to engage in accepting love through the medium of music and giving love through the medium of music. And what better thing is there? Who can judge that? Who can say that, that there's something inherently selfish about it, even though many artists come from the beginning of that process from a selfish point of view? What does it do for me? But um, as I've, over the years, not only realized myself, but taught my students, especially my conducting students that, hey, when we make music for selfish reasons, we're bound to be anxious and perfectionistic and, and, and miss the point of why we're doing it. What if we can be like, I point to the great uh, master Beethoven, 
where his early works are very precocious. They are very superficial and precocious and brilliant and genius and prodigious, uh, for, you know, uh, prodigy, prodigious. But look at his spiritual journey. Look at what he produced ongoing. Every iteration of the symphony showed his spiritual growth. Look at the leap he made between the second symphony, which is still firmly rooted as a classical symphony, which is firmly rooted in the shadow of Mozart and Haydn. And he leaps to the Eroica symphony. It is unbelievable the, the dynamic power, the, the form, the content, the harmony, the melody that he creates in that symphony. Then he takes a step back and says, whoa, Huge leap. Let me get the fourth symphony. Back to Papa Haydn. <laughs> and then he leaps again. Fifth symphony. He points the way with that first through four notes, the, the, the G and the E flat. And ba -ba -ba -bam. Not only to the way forward for the, for the romantics, but even into the 20th century, this little cell that he just decides this will be the, the nucleus of the symphony and I will build a universe out of it. And on and on to the ninth symphony that he goes to create worlds of communication. And then, and then of course the ode to joy and the last movement as you could sing way better than me, but let us get rid of these, this cacophony of argument and be brothers together. And so I look to that spiritual journey as one to say, like, look, how do I myself learn to put off the things that held me back and to look towards this journey of connecting through music, to supporting others in music, and to create relationships through music that heal and bring love to the world. That's right. And you know, I think that, right. like, yeah, please. My, my, uh, my grandmother uh, died in her sleep. She had been, she had been released from the hospital from having a heart. I was in Brazil actually at the time when she had her heart attack and I came home and was staying with her for about a week after she was discharged. And the night that she died, I, I found, well, my, my uncle found her in the morning. I was asleep when I heard him holler out. And the, the thing that she, the very last thing that she said, we were watching uh, boxing. She loved boxing, I think, because her husband, my grandfather, loved boxing. So kind of reminded her of him, I think. And so we were watching a boxing match, match together in the bedroom before bed. And she said, Omar, you, I want to tell you something. And I said, okay, you know. She said, no, you need to listen. She said, you know, at this, this is the honest to God truth. This is the last thing she said to me. You know, she said, I know the secret to life. And I said, really? Mm. I said, she said, no, you need to listen. Listen to me. She mm. said, the secret to life is pretty simple. It's just to learn how to love and how to be loved. And mm. that's it. And it seems so yeah. simple. It seems so simple. But <laughs> learning how to love yourself is really difficult for some people, not for all people, not for yeah. all people. I know, I know some people who love themselves <laughs> plenty, um, but it's really difficult. And the defenses that we put up and the com compensatory damage that we create to, to figure that out sometimes is so difficult. Yeah. And you and I, 
think of this ode to joy in a very similar way. I I think of it really literally, and it's really mm -hmm. powerful to yeah. treat each other like brothers and sisters. And it's uh, you know, that's why I got into music, and I think that's probably the bottom line for you too. It's this yeah, helping it kind of uh, lights the way, lit the way for for myself to yeah to love myself and it's funny you're talking about about fatherhood too and all of my favorite movies by the way are about the failure of the father um or the triumph of of yeah. fatherly love that one of the one or the other mm. um mm. but i overcompensate i wouldn't say overcompensate but i'm very aware of my son's experience and my daughter's experience yeah. in contrast to my yes. experience yeah. And it's one of the things that makes me want to go out and play ball, you know, and do something. And and I, I yeah. remember when my son turned four, I thought, oh, I just won. I just won this game because <laughs> I didn't kick him out of the house. And he's going to have a profoundly <laughs> different experience as a child that, than I had. And yeah. I wonder if that's something that, that you're conscious of, too, with Luke and your son. Oh, keenly keenly aware of something i feel very very metacognitive is the word uh that comes to mind about that when luke before he was even born uh i remember having a really um beautiful conversation with a with an old friend of mine while i was teaching i'm um, working at crossroads school that got a great music program i was working with Alex Trager was his assistant, but they they had this wonderful woman, uh, Betty Walsh was the assistant to the uh, program. And once upon a time, she had actually been the assistant to Michael Tilson Thomas. So she she knew a lot of people in the industry. Like she, she really knew what was up, so to speak, with music and all that. But one day we were talking about, you know, me and, what did I think of being a father? I think that was just the simple question because I was going to be a first-time father. And I, I still remember the the gist of what I said was like, you know, I see my path as being a father is one that I get to be this person who is a model that I could I can provide for him at that time i knew it was, it was going to be a boy you know luke uh, i i want to be able to be a father that he can understand is there for him who uh isn't afraid to to you know push him but also to accept him for who he is and to interact to play with him to throw a baseball with him which is such a simple simple thing but but literally i did not have a person in my life to do that with to teach him how to ride a bike which i did i have a video i can share with you i you know i taught him how to ride a bike in one day and he learned it and i you know teach him golf you know these are all non-musical activities and i think that it's because and it's something that i wanted him to have a sense of like ability to look at the world and say there are possibilities ahead of you 
I'm teaching him trumpet now and he's in band now. So it's just great. And then, you know, people say, Oh, you want him to become a musician? It's like, not if I can help it. Uh, if, if he, if someone's get a real a job, kid. Yeah, get a real job. Yeah. But no, I, I want to support him and to accept him for who he is, who he wants to be, provide that sense of, you know, fathership. Now it's, it's complicated, right? Because, you know, I have to also give myself the empathy because, you know, I did ultimately when he was five, uh, we divorced Jennifer and I, and, you know, he's living with her and now he's 11, he's going on 14. <laughs> um, and, you know, you start thinking about, okay, well, how do I continue to be a good father? Even though that relationship didn't work out, how does he know that he has a central part in my heart, in my life. Uh, it, it, anything related to that thing that happened is not because of him. You know, I, when you're five or six, you know, you don't, you don't understand those things. And to move forward from there and to continue to, you know, on a part-time basis, you know, I don't get to see him every single day to connect and to encourage and to still play golf with him and, tennis and throw the baseball and go to his soccer matches and go to, you know, lacrosse when he wanted to try lacrosse and, uh, you know, all these things. And it's, it's still a beautiful and wonderful thing. And, and now, as you know, the opportunity, you know, I'm, I'm married to a wonderful woman, Catherine, and I get to go at it again. We're pregnant with twin boys, identical twin boys that are due in July. Uh, July 2021, if we could mark this in this in this video uh, for the archives, and holy moly, I get to be a dad, not just a dad, but father to two more sons, and to now involve Luke in, into hey brothers, and that could be complicated. You know, my mom remarried uh, when I was like about 13 and had two more kids and that relationship has been fraught the whole time. And, you know, that's a whole nother story, but still the relationship when you're a little older to, to newborns, it, it's hard to connect. Even when you're living in the same house, it's still generationally, it took me a long time really to connect more as adults with my, my brother, Dane who's the youngest and Sarah, who's the next youngest out of five siblings now. But, you know, I, I, I really feel a lot of love for them and we connect and I try to, you know, do whatever I can to stay in touch. But, uh, yeah, so now, so now there's, there's all this huge opportunity again for me to like say, Hey, how do I continue to be a good father and to support them and to create an environment of love, of, of honesty? That's one thing. I would have to say for me, I was intent on is just being honest with Luke. You know, there's too many people growing up in my family who were not honest about who my father was. Uh, you know, what, what was, what we were going through, uh, you know, what are the struggles of our life? Who was my family? Just knowing, just being given honest and open communication and relationship. It was always, things were always closed. Dishonesty, or at least 
you know, when you, when you close off information, uh, it, it makes you feel like, well, what's wrong? There's something bad about that. And so you start, you start developing, um, parts of your personality that deal with relationships and information about family and in ways that you have to unpack later and relearn how to have healthy communication, healthy relationships, honesty, openness. These are all things that in my later life I am working on. You know, I could say that, you know, when Luke was five, we're, I remember we're in target is right before Christmas. And he says, Hey dad. So yeah, he said, um, you know, somebody told me that, that, Santa Claus is not real. And I was like, oh, interesting. He said, and he says, well, is he? And I said, Luke, do you want to know the honest answer? Yeah. Okay. And I told him what I knew. I said, you know, maybe St. Nick was a person a long time ago that did nice things for kids in his community. And, you know, as somebody they celebrated and it, and it, you know, it's a holiday that was combined with different, um, pagan holidays that created Christmas. And it's a myth that we've pro propelled forward, not to say that there isn't this idea of giving gifts. And it's a, you know, we have mythical creatures in our, in our life. Um, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with it, but that for, for everything I know, that is, is not a real thing. And he was, Oh, okay. He <laughs> was five years old when that story came out. And, and it's, it's hard. How do you as a parent, you know, balance this idea of like, you know, having magical ideas and myth and story and balance that with quote unquote reality. And, and that's, that can be a struggle if you are intent on being honest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to go, go back a little bit about this, um, this idea of, of uh, childhood injury and recovery. And it seems like you're, I don't know if we ever truly recover from from the the slings and arrows of childhood, and I think everybody has their own cross to bear, major or minor. We all have our things in our childhood and relationships with parents and relatives. But it seems like with uh, Catherine's pregnancy, your new the new place that you just got, and your latest um, musical assignment that you're fulfilling uh, at Loxa. <laughs> I feel like everything has kind of uh, come together at this moment. Um, I'm, I, and I'd like to talk to you. I'd like you to mention what it is that you're doing and where you're working and and yeah. and all that. Yeah. It's terrific. I I'm I have this thing about me because of my background up until my twenties, up until I found music. And when I say that music kind of saved my life, it it like you, it really did. Um, I always. Yeah. I have a really bad habit of waiting for the shoe to drop. Mm. Like when something really good happens, there's something in the back of my mind that, that mm -hmm. needs, I need to temper the, the joy that I'm feeling because I'm yeah. almost positive that it's going to go down the toilet really soon. Um, <laughs> so do, is that something that you, that you have in you, or are you able to take this moment in your life, which from an outside perspective looks like, you you I don't I I don't know if you've ever been in the groove like you're in the groove now and mm -hmm. is that it, mm -hmm. you know is that, how do you deal with that is is it just me that waits for the shit to hit the fan or <laughs> Omar I, I I think we belong to a very similar club <laughs> um yeah it's I, I do have those 
moments and extended periods of like, you know, don't fuck this up sort of, you know, it's like, I, I've had lots of great experiences. Uh, you know, it feels like, oh, this feels too good to be true. Sort of like, you know, this, this position uh, that I have now is at the Los Angeles County High School for the Arts. Um, and I, I was just hired last summer in August to be the chair of the music department for, uh, you know, if we could, if I could, you know, put a PSA out there, you know, the number one arts high school in America as designated by niche.com. <laughs> uh, but you know, that, that, uh, that responsibility though, it's like, I'm the dude, like there is a huge constituency, not only of my students and my faculty, but the whole school, um, my colleagues and friends, you know, kind of, kind of look and say like, I always feel like with, and this comes back to my family and how they treated me in the past about my successes. Like I don't get people sending me congratulation texts when I get a new job. When I got this new job, that didn't come from my family. It came from my friends and my colleagues a lot, you know, it, to, to a degree, but it wasn't like, Holy moly. That's wow. Michael, so proud of you. And it's always yeah, you've just made been the powers like, name. Oh, you've, you've made us all proud. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of my cousins and, and family are, you know, blue-collar workers. So there's Powers Brothers Machine down in Montebello, and they're doing a great job. And, you know, I respect what they do. And I and, and I, I, it's amazing that my grandfather and his brothers started a machine company back in the 1960s, I believe it was. So it's been going for like 50 years now. Um, but when I got the job, you know, there's this huge responsibility and weight, I feel, about, like, gosh, I have this whole thing in front of me and I've got to reinvent a bunch of different wheels here. I have these great visions for what not only am I wanting to accomplish in this department, but to see the innovation happen in music education that I see is necessary to bring together the resources and the partnerships and the, and the people, the teachers that, I, that I'm going to need not, in addition to the ones we have, which are brilliant. And like all of that, I put that pressure on myself it's like this has to be great from the beginning you know this has to succeed from the beginning and it creates a bit of like this sort of like like i'm my own worst enemy in a way of like getting in my own way of just like doing the things i need to do to learn the job the first year in any job is hard enough and i'm doing it during a pandemic <laughs> leading a whole department and probably in the fall, we're going to come back, you know, at, at the very least in the, in the fall or in August in person, I'm calling it my first year 2.0 <laughs> because it's going to be like, Oh, I, I think we world. all are. Yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, going to be organizing a whole, like a whole new thing in person. Now we're talking about classrooms, managing spaces, get, shuttling people, supplies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the whole game is going to change again and i'm going to have to relearn the job again and so I, I my brain kind of thinks in this metacognitive way and like i see all the problems before they happen and i, I also try to see the solutions but the problems weigh on me often and i'm like how am i going to get out of these problems even if there's not a problem and so it does create this sort of sense of anxiety sometimes of just like oh, you know is it going to be okay am i going to succeed you know and uh, I've noticed that I am getting better at 
advocating for myself, giving myself permission to not, I, I didn't want to use the word fail, but just to say, it doesn't have to be perfect every time to ask parents for help. They don't do it. Ask another parent to ask Catherine for help to, you know, this. So I'm getting better and better at just saying, hey, I've, I've got to feel myself not as this sort of hero figure. And we go back to that thing. I've got to be the hero and, and charge and do this all myself and really say like, no, it's, it's really got to be part of a team. It's got to be a part of a cohesive group of people who feel like they're in a community and they want to work together to succeed. And then they will help you to succeed. It's got to be that cycle. And I'm, I'm learning that all over again because I've been such a sort of lone wolf in my career, like holding the job at USC part-time. And at the same time, I'm working for LA City College. And at the same time, I was working at Pasadena City College. There was, there was a three-year stint where I was working at three different colleges here in LA and trying to make all that cycle and work and fitting my schedule and communicating with three different administrations and had my students and family and everything else going on. A, a kid at home, Luke, he, and uh, that was crazy. And and it just it felt like I was doing everything by myself. Yeah, it, I well, wasn't. I, it's too much to control, right? It's 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 really. I think what what comes with age is is uh, obviously you have you have. Uh, I I don't know if it's foresight or if it's. I have the ability to understand what I can and can't control, what I should and shouldn't control. And again, music has kind of been one of the big um, guides for me in that you music literally is is ephemeral. It's uncontrollable. The actual mm. vibrations yeah. of music occur and then they disappear. Mm. And to think that you can mm. hold on to them like like a galloping horse or something and control it. It's it's really it's really a magical thing uh, that that I don't know music has taught me more than I've taught it for sure. I mean it's it's been my biggest oh, yeah. guide, my cruelest mistress, my uh, salvation. Mm -hmm. It's been you know it's been all of yeah. all of those things. Um, and yeah. I'm so I've got to say that I, we, I, we've got to wrap it up. We've been at this for over an hour now. And I <laughs> but that being said, I would love to have another conversation um, and get to music a little bit more. This has been like a, a therapy session for me. I don't know about you, but. Um, <laughs> it's beautiful to connect with you, Omar. And, and we have certainly, we, we've connected over art. You know, I remember meeting you in Paso Robles, uh, you know, and that the, the opera project, uh, the three uh, Paderewski's where Catherine was singing uh, the role of Paderewski's wife, and you were, and you were in the, I believe, the chorus. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and like, you were chatting about working for the Dream Orchestra, and 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 you were so, but I have, you know, ideas for programming and like LA and da 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 da. And in the background, the year before that, I was like, I'm going to create an orchestra about the identity. I kept coming back to this idea that music must be about identity and relevance. How do I do that? How do I do that? Oh, an orchestra about the city and its people, <laughs> which is, which is, you know, and like, and then we started talking and like, whoa, okay. Bing, and bing, so bing. on the next episode, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, but yeah, so it's, it, I get back to like how much I treasure meeting you as a, 
a kindred spirit, and, and I haven't had that experience very often in my life. How much I really, there's so much that we have yet to experience together because this pandemic we've been apart, and so much fishing and camping and making music together and building orchestras and and having life together that has yet to unfold. And I'm That's looking right. forward to that. Well, I couldn't be more proud to know you. I'm so happy for your successes and, and the, the two little ones that are on their way. And it's just, mm. it's been a real pleasure knowing you. And I, like you, look forward to every second we have together in the future. And uh, mm. I'm glad to call you my friend. Thanks for being on the show, Michael. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Omar. I really appreciate it. And there you have it, folks. That was Michael Powers. Thanks for being on the show, Michael. It's always great to catch up with you on or off camera. Thanks again for listening. Remember to be kind, do good work, and until next time.